PRI is simply an institute that is crystallizing an understanding about human asymmetry. That's the job and the role of the Postural Restoration Institute, is to synthesize and collect research and data on the fact that humans are asymmetrical and that it matters. You're listening to Muscle Medicine, where we debunk the myths in the health and wellness world to bring you the latest updates in exercise, rehab, and nutrition from industry leaders. Join your host, Dr. Emily Kybird, chiropractor and movement expert, as she brings you simple, actionable tips to reach your fullest potential. All right, Muscle Medicine Podcast here with Dr. Emily Kybird, and I'm super excited to sit down with Mike Cantrell, an instructor for Postural Restoration Institute, PRI. I'm so excited. I've actually taken your courses, multiple courses, and they're always super entertaining. So I'm super excited (laughs) to sit down (laughs) one-on-one with you. Well, I'm glad to be here, and I'm ready to kind of... uh you know, ramble. And then, and as we ramble or as I ramble, you can just kind of throw a towel in and say, Mike, shut up. I'd like to move to the next portion of the conversation. So there was a great kind of story impression that you did. I think it was of a cowboy, an older gent leaning over to the right. I think I saw that twice. and I was like, wow, he has really got that impersonation. (laughs) That might've been the guy named Royce. Yes, Royce. Yes, and I was talking about ligamentous laxity in the anterior hip capsule, and yeah, his his cousin Cooter. True story. Yeah. <laughs> True story. Both of these guys, I still know them. They're so good can, guys. <laughs> can you give a little bit of just like a quick, brief history of Mike Cantrell? Yeah, yeah. Okay, all right. I'll do my best. I'll just start with like my PRI history. That that makes the yeah. most sense. Not I was born. No, I don't want to do that to anybody. <laughs> So, um, yeah, I, I had wandered into a, my first PRI class at the behest of a, uh, a medical sales rep. He said, hey, there's this really smart guy, and I want you to learn about this thing. It's called a protonic system. And he invented it. And he said, and I'm supposed to sell it, but I don't even know how to work it or what it does. I'm giving you the abbreviated version. So I end up in Texas and I'm taking this class from this guy. His name's Ron Haruska. And I'm like, who the hell's this dude? Well, I sit down, I'm up front and not by choice. It was the only seat left. You know, it's like when you come late to church, you're kind of stuck going up front. (laughs) So there I was up front. And then he started saying things and they were upsetting my apple cart because it's not what I had learned. And I was like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. You know, I don't mind if you say something. But uh, it's kind of flying in the face of my typical physical therapy education. And, of course, I thought I knew everything. So I can't be told I'm wrong. That's, that just doesn't work. But as he began to point out things, I realized very quickly, well, darn, I, you know, I am wrong. And so I needed more. He would say A plus B equals X. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa wait a minute, Charlie, connect the dots. But that's the instructor that Ron is. You know, he, he speaks in parables. And so you have to decipher the code that is Ron. So I spent, oh my God, like every time there was a a course being offered and there weren't many back then. So every time it was just, the course was just, you know, it had different names, but none of them were the typical names that we have for courses now. And so I would go to these classes that he was teaching and, um, and he'd be like, well, Mike, I see you're back again. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm back. Now let's get busy. Come on. I'd also, I'd put my name tag like right on my right upper chest 
in plain view because I was like, I want this guy to know who I am. And right. um, he's, he's like, he would laugh so much. He'd go, nowadays he'll tell me, Mike, I didn't need to, your name tag because you were making such a violent ruckus <laughs> up front. I was sitting in the same place every time. He goes, I kind of knew who you were early on. And he said, he, he went home, he told his wife, hey, I think I found an instructor for the Institute. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, he tells me that long after the fact. So I just kept going to course after course after course. I ended up um, in the late 90s, like 99 and 2000, teaching for this company. MB was the name of that company. So uh, I taught the use of that protonic system that Ron had invented. It's a nifty device. It's a hamstring activating thing. It's, it stands for programmable tonic resistance. They're still in use today, but you don't hear a PRI pushing those things much at all. Because, you know, there's so many things that we can do now that take us well beyond protonics. However, there are applications for that device. Anyway, I have a couple of slides and a few of my classes that I teach that are sort of honorable mention to protonics because I just can't leave it out. So then fast forward in 2004, prior to that, the Institute was formed, the official postural restoration Institute. Two, two, two. So then I um, <laughs> was building a new clinic in 2004 and five, And so that expansion kept me from getting the certification in 04 and I was still building in 05. So then when 06 came, I went and got certified. And then in 06, 07, I started teaching. And that's when I kind of met up with James Anderson and James and I kind of, we just immediately sort of hit it off. And people were saying, well, do you know James Anderson? I was like, I don't know this guy. Who the hell is he? Ron knows him really well. Ron knows Mike really well. Mike and James don't know each other at all. And then Ron says, Mike, uh, you know, I want you to meet up with James. He's teaching this course called Myokinematics that we just made. And I want you to hook up with him and, you know, travel a little bit and learn how to do it and then teach it. Mike, well, okay. So that's what happened. And then 07, I taught and then 08, 09. And then somewhere along the way, started doing this course that was called Postural Restoration. It changed names to Postural Respiration. And then so I started teaching that and then that moved into teaching impingement and instability. And then that segued into doing advanced integration. And then that segued into teaching this new course that used to be sort of the, the TMCC course. It was like the course with no name. I went to PRI on a course with no name. Anyway, so um, it now has a name, Cervical Revolution. And then this newest course, I doubt I'll ever be teaching that course, but it was a fun course. I just took its inaugural this past, uh, I don't know, a couple of weekends ago in Seattle that uh, cranial resonance course. Oh. Um, oh yeah. Listen, dude, it's called uh, cranial resolution. Wow. And, um, so uh, I was like uh, subtitling it ongoing repatterning. And to me, I'm more excited about that course than I am any course. And um, I love, I love that you're still, you're always a student. Oh dude. Can yeah. I just tell you, it's like, I'm the perpetual nerd and I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to a con ed course, you know, in the, there's like this, airway group and the American Association of Physiologic Medicine and Dentistry. And so I'm a member of that thing and they've got a neat course that I'm going to. And it, all of this is about airway management and I'm going to this airway conference in Chicago in a week or two. And I'm going to spend some time up there. And I, I think I'm, I think I'm doing a presentation with my dentist. So mm back to the beginning of this. So, I, you know, that was sort of my PRI progression and just getting more and more immersed in it. Somewhere along the way, I started writing papers to sort of clarify in my head what I think, you know, Ron, is this what you mean? And then he'd look at that and he'd 
say, yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Can we post that? And I was like, mm, okay. I mean, that's not why I wrote it, but if you want to post it now, it's like, sometimes I read the articles. I say, well, look, if somebody quotes me, I want to go, all right, make sure you date me because it's like, I said that back in 06, but I don't Sir know that God. I yeah, <laughs> circa. Yeah, because it's like, like I don't know that I, yeah. I want to I change a little bit of what I wrote, you know? Yeah. So I'm always in the middle of writing something. I've got a couple of documents that I'm, that I'm creating right now. One of them I'm doing with James, which is going to be a fun article once we finish it. Cool. So we're always doing stuff like that. So for someone, whether a practitioner or just kind of a human on the planet who doesn't know what PRI is, how would you explain it? I would say it all PRI. First of all, it's not a system. Okay. It's more of a principle. It's like saying, I'm going to use the system called anatomy. <laughs> you know, and you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. That, that's not a system. And I'm like, I agree. And neither is PRI. PRI is simply an institute that is crystallizing an understanding about human asymmetry. That's the job and the role of the Postural Restoration Institute is to synthesize and collect research and data on the fact that humans are asymmetrical and that it matters. Because if I'm sitting out there, I'd be like, okay, so they're asymmetrical, whatever. So we're, so. So we're not supposed to do the same number of reps every side, every time. <laughs> right. That's what it ends up boiling down to sometimes. Folks go, so that's, that's what you're saying, right? I'm like, well, maybe, maybe I'm saying that. What I'm really implying is that if somebody wanted to do the same number of reps on both sides, I'd like for them to feel it the same way on both sides. Actually, that kind of centers around that cranial resonance course I just took. The number one thing in PRI is not that there's a liver over there and there's a heart over there and our diaphragms are different. That's a big deal. And diaphragm is king of the world. But that our brains are not the same either. And what we perceive and receive as incoming data to our brains is not symmetric either. So the load that I perceive through my foot, for example, correlates with what I hear in my right and left ear because they also receive data non-symmetrically. I breathe differently through both of my nostrils non-symmetrically. And if, uh, you know, there, there's some good research that speaks to the perception of respiration in the left nostril is consistent with one side of my brain and the right nostril is consistent with the other side of my brain. So just simple stuff like that or my eyes. Everybody on the planet has had a stroke. It's just some of us haven't officially had one yet, but we're all behaving as though we do with, with significant left-sided neglect. So it's only fed by things like organ placement or, or uh, diaphragm asymmetry and how we breathe and how we manage airway and airflow. So I would be saying, if you're going to work out with, a, you know, with the understanding that asymmetrical anatomy is a part of your life, then I'd like for you to try to increase perception of your left. You need the same number of reps, go for it. I just want you to increase perception of left. So left loading is a huge thing. So can you talk about why the asymmetry is important? You know, you, you kind of mentioned, you touched mm -hmm. on airway and diaphragm. And mm -hmm. I, I think, you know, most, most of the beings on the planet don't know that we're asymmetrical. If I sliced me in half, the world would be a better place. <laughs> if I sliced me in half 
and somebody looked at my left half versus my right half inside, they would immediately see that my left and my right are not the same. And as a result of that left and right not being the same, I tend to load my center of mass over the right more often than the left. Sometimes I can actually do that efficiently on the right more than the left. Now, that is an important thing because the minute I'm doing that, then what I have to do is alter the way I breathe because I'm not going to receive air in one lung, my left or my right, in this case, my right. I'm not going to receive air as well on the right as I would on the left. So immediately I'll compensate. So that is a must, especially with higher demands for air. So I may be fine if I'm Joe Bag of Donuts walking around the house, beating the kids, going you know, to work and whatever. But the minute I decide to start taking up physical exercise and increasing, you know, capacity, respiratory rate, absolutely. So the minute I do that, I've just increased a demand for air. The minute I increase my need for air, I'm going to do that usually with my neck. So I'll start increasing neck muscle activity to raise my rib cage. I'll start flattening it. What that does is it starts burying me in the pattern even more, this right side dominant asymmetric pattern. So the harder I work to receive air, it's paradoxical because then the more I bury myself in the pattern, that makes me work harder to receive more air. So, and you know, the whole world is just waiting for me to exhale on the left because I really need to just get air out on the left to increase my ability to inhale on the right. But so often that that is lost to Joe Bagadonas, who just started exercising. He doesn't know that. Why? Right. My neck hurts. I'm exercising and my back's killing me. And can you talk about why? Because I think when people think I need to increase my capacity for air, that I need to inhale more. But really, it's something else. Dude, you know, if you go into any hospital and, you know, you'll see someone who's had surgery of any sort and sitting next to the bed is that little plastic thing that's got the bubbles in the, the, the little blue balls and they, they suck through the big hose to try to make the blue balls rise up. I remember the first time I ever saw one of those, my mom had surgery years ago and I'm a kid coming into her room. I started playing with that oh. thing all over the place. That was just nothing but fun. <laughs> but you know, I was like, look, mom, I can hold those things all the way at the top really well. Yes, we're very proud of you, Mikey. But then, you know, what I'd love to see is if they flip that thing around where you had to breathe out and make those things stay up. Now that would be very cool. So yeah, the idea is that, what did you ask me? That when we think about increasing our capacity yeah, for that air. not that so much inhale. Right. Right. Yeah, so, it, and we do. And what I'd love to see people concern themselves with is the actual act of exhalation and exhalation that is complete. How can I breathe? If I said to everybody listening to this podcast, hey, everybody, take a giant breath in. And then they did that. And then I said, okay, now hang on right there. Okay, breathe in. They'd go, well, wait a minute, Mike, you forgot. You, you already told me to breathe in. And I'd say, yeah, I know. Take another breath in on top of that. Kind of hard, right? And they would go, well, yeah, I need to breathe out first. Thank you, class dismissed. Because what I would love to see people do is fully exhale before they decide to inhale. Or fully load right before they decide to fully load left. And then we can learn them how to fully load left and then teach them how to go back to the right. That's called pendular Op alternating lateralization. I'd love to see that happen. Going to a full exhale. I think mm -hmm. what's, what's the Mike Cantrell definition of a full exhale or maybe mm -hmm. the PRI. Okay. There would be the PRI yeah, lens. I, we could kind of create two different definitions of that. 
So one definition of a full exhale, we could use, for example, an incentive spirometer, and we could apply normative data. And the normative data says that, you know, a male of average age, average height, et cetera, should be able to, in the, with forced expiratory volume in one second, FEV1, that they should be able to exhale somewhere between, you know, 3,000 to 4,500 cc's of air. Hooray for the home team. So I'd take my little spirometer and blow out. Oh, look, I'm, look mom, I'm blowing out 3,500 <laughs> cc's. Good, Mikey. So um, I should be able to blow out that much. However, what you and I both already suspect and kind of know is that that full exhalation only came from one side. It came from my right side. I got some out of my left. I'm not denying that at all. I'm saying that the exhalation came out mostly from one side. Likewise, the inhalation can only go in one side. So I exhaled out of my right and inhaled out of my left. So I would love to apply a different standard. And that different standard that is sort of PRIZED would be <laughs> how, how about if we put you in a certain position that precluded your ability to inhale into your left lung and forced you to inhale into your right lung and we measured that, now blow out. Oh, you kind of suck. You blew out 600 cc's of air. Hmm, I wonder if we could work on that. Maybe get that to, say, 1,500. Whoa, that would be 1,500 cc's of air that I took in to my right lung, brought to you by the left diaphragm. Because the <laughs> only way I could do that is I've fully exhaled on my left side to create then inspiration that occurred on my right side. So I'm measuring two things now. Thing one, my ability to put air into my right lung, hooray. And thing two, and this is fun, my ability to rotate my trunk to the right. So I just measured in a three-dimensional volume of air my ability to rotate. That's a big deal. It irritates the hell out of insurance companies, though. Because <laughs> an insurance – oh, I got a phone call once. Funniest story on earth. This lady said, uh, yeah, we were reviewing your chart. And I was like, why? But anyway, so they're reviewing my chart, and, uh, and they said, uh, you know, Mike, we see here trunk rotation – 1400 cc's and she said this is the funny part you can't measure trunk rotation in cc's and i went no you can't measure trunk rotation in cc's i can i do it all the time you have the numbers right in front of me. she goes well how do you do that i said well that'll cost you 495 dollars in the continuing education course because i'm not going to sit here and teach you over the phone i don't have time and you really don't want to hear it it was <laughs> hilarious you know anyway that's what you deal with but, yeah. you know, we measure swelling in cc's of water. Back in the old days, you would dip a foot down in the water to see how much ankle swelling was there by measuring the amount of displaced water. It's a great three-dimensional way to do it. Nobody ever does it, but it's pretty nifty. Well, the same thing holds true with trunk rotation. Ribs externally rotate to rotate trunks. Friat's law, thank you very much. You know, <laughs> anyways. So when people, let's say, aren't exhaling and inhaling equally mm -hmm on the right and left side, how does that present in the body? Like if someone's sitting here listening to this and they're like, am I that person? <laughs> what would I feel? Oh, I what would, would I see? Yeah. <laughs> I would say, I would say to that person who's listening, yes, you're that person. <laughs> now, whether or not we care would be another story, but you are that person because we all are that person. Right. Emily is, Mike is, all God's chilling is that person. Right. So what we would say to that person uh, is you might appear to have a right, shoulder, for example, that appears lower than your left. And I think there's tons of people out there right now listening to that podcast who may stand up, look in the mirror and go, whoa, that is me. Or they might say, well, hell, that's been me. Everybody tells me my right shoulder is lower than my left. I just try to shrug my right shoulder up. 
It's like a buddy of mine named Craig. I'm always telling Craig, Craig, will you stop that? How many times do I have to tell you? It's like my 51st date. This guy never remembers what I say. I'm like, dude, quit shrugging your shoulder. Thoracically, move your thorax to the left. What? I've tried every sort of explanation. I finally got it just recently. He's like, why didn't you tell me that in the first place? And I'm smacking myself in the forehead. But so a person might have a, uh, a shoulder that appears lower on the right side. They might have a mild scoliosis. They might have a rib hump on the back on the right, or they might have a rib flare on the left in the front. They might have a pelvis as they look at themselves in the mirror that doesn't appear to be the same height. Some people can tell me that they sense, I've had patients literally walk in telling me, having never heard about PRI, they'll say to me things like, you know, it's, it's so odd, but I, nobody understands this. I wish somebody did, but I feel like I can't touch the ground with my left leg. And I'm like, yeah, okay. Or I feel like I'm crushing the floor with my right. I just don't feel balanced, stuff like that. I had a dude one time come in and he said, I've got this right knee pain. I think it has something to do with the way I'm breathing. I just wanted to hug the guy. How intuitive this, of him. <laughs> I know. And, I was like, and he's not, he wasn't some runner. He said, Mike, I just run to keep from being a fat ass. I said, me too. And he's like, so you could time me with a calendar if I ran a 5K. He said, but something's wrong. I just, I feel like my breathing, when I start breathing hard, my knee hurts more and I don't get it. I was like, dude, I think I do. So we can, we can work. And he was kind of the fun guy. Those, those are the ones you don't ever get very often. But when I got him, well, obviously I still remember him. And that was like 15 years ago. So yeah. this dude was cool. Anyway, so uh, those are the things that I would tell people to look for. And then sometimes people will stand with hyperextended knees and think it really doesn't matter. They just have hyperextended knees, you know, knees that lock back too far. Yeah. Oh, I'm double, I'm double jointed. Yeah, well, you don't have hamstrings, Mr. Double Jointed Boy. And uh, if you're palming the floor without hamstrings, in other words, your knees are locked back and you can bend over and touch the floor with your palms. Houston, we got a problem. You've added more on top of your compensatory strategies to move air better. Now you've compromised your one saving grace, those hamstrings. We need those bad boys. There were many, many knowledge bombs when I took the, your PRI courses, but I think that was a really big one because I think before that, I didn't have like, what's, this, what's a standard, what's an okay range, right? I think it was, right, it, felt, right. it feels very wide, like 120 degrees flexion. Yeah, of a so, straight leg raise. Yeah, so yeah. Can, you, can you talk about about why that's so important? You know, there's some research that says what the norms are for a straight leg raise, but if we just kind of put it at around 90, we could say, yeah, somebody should be able to long sit, sit up relatively erect with their legs out in front of them, and they should be able to do that without a lot of, a ton of effort. You know, we could apply sort of a normative range and say somewhere between maybe 75, 80 degrees, up to maybe 110 would be sort of the normal range of a straight leg raise. Beyond that, you're too dang flexible. Below that, there's, there's a problem. You're probably neurologically compromised. If we understand that hamstrings are the muscle group that neutrally positions a pelvis during gait, that is their number one function. It's not to see how many hamstring curls I can do or how much weight I can do or bend my knee with my hamstrings, and that's a fine function. But, you know, all our creator cared about was whether or not we could stabilize our pelvis and swing the other leg through with, uh, in a normal gait pattern. That's what those muscles are for. So imagine, here's, here's a decent little knowledge bomb, if you will, that <laughs> we, have, we have internal obliques. And we always speak about IOs, internal obliques. 
as the internal rotator of our ribs. And that's great. But internal obliques can also be the enemy and work synchronously with hip flexors because internal obliques, because of their attachment, anteriorly tilt pelvises. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. But, but we don't like anteriorly tilted pelvis. I know. But wait a minute. But we do like IOs because they internally rotate ribs. Yeah, well, they have to do that by anchoring to a pelvis. So who keeps the pelvis from anteriorly tipping while I'm busy internally rotating my ribs? Hamstrings. It's hamstrings. <laughs> so wait a minute. IOs work with hamstrings? Yeah, just like EOs work with serratuses. So that combo creates some stability intra-abdominally for pelvic stability and pelvic floor. Wait, wait, you mean like kind of core-like? Yeah, yeah, maybe like a, a core, but really a complex core that nobody really wants to address as an asymmetric core because one set of IOs is not quite as busy and not working well with his friend, Mr. Hamstring, on the left side, which caused that rib to flare and that scoliosis to be there and the rib hump on the right side and the right shoulder to drop and a partridge in a pear tree. So it's just, it's crazy. All the way up into the cervical, but those, um, <laughs> that's a little trickier. <laughs> yeah, it gets really crazy from T4 up. Yeah. That's um, the supercomputer of life. So what do you tell, I'm sure there are people who've been walk, who have walked into your office and been like, you know, I've been stretching my hamstrings or maybe they have a background of being a yogi or... Mm-hmm. They're my favorite patients. LOL. Ice skater. <laughs> yeah. What do you tell those people? Well, first, with a, with a yogi, you know, you have to bring them in the back door because they don't want anybody to know that they're in treatment. Because, <laughs> you know, they're like, nobody can know. I'm a yogi. I'm supposed to not hurt. It's okay. You're also a human. So come on in anyway. They're proud of the fact that those hamstrings are so long and flexible and that they can not only palm the floor, they can put their elbows on the floor. You know, they could touch somebody else's toes. They're so flexible. They like that. And, you know, some days I kind of wish I was that flexible, but then I snap out of them and I realize, no, that's crazy. But anyway, it just looks so cool. But the problem is that that hyper-flexible individual who has spent a lifetime in ballet putting their knee in their face, or I had a diver who was really, really Greg Luganus good at putting his chest on his knees. And it made for a really, really pretty one and a half somersault with a full twist. You know, I was like, this guy, he rocks. But anyway, it's great for that. It's great for dance and it's great for, sort of great for yoga. It's actually not great for yoga and and it doesn't call for that yoga, but that's another story. It has its place where it looks neat. If we're sitting in an audience at the fabulous Fox Theater in downtown Atlanta watching the Atlanta Ballet, and we're seeing people put their knee in their face, we're going, wow, that looks cool. Or we're at Cirque du Soleil going, look at what that lady can do. Then afterward, we're seeing that lady as a patient. And, we're, and, and it's because they can do that. And it's no worse than, than the bodybuilder who's massive and looks incredible up there on that stage. Man, that takes a lot of hard work to do that. But then he's got all kinds of problems, and he's just at the other end of that spectrum. So this hyper-flexible hamstring person, the yogi, is fraught with lower back pain because it's all she has left to hold her up against gravity. So her low back is now keeping her from falling forward because her hamstrings certainly left years ago, and they were the only thing she had, so her low back kicks in. And then, and she's asking me why she has pelvic floor problems. You know, I I can't go to a comedy club anymore because every time I laugh, I pee my pants. 
or, you know, sex is out of the question now with my husband because it hurts like hell. And so when they bring these things up, the first thing I want to do, now this will sound whacked, but I want to look at the jaw because I know that they're picking up their stability someplace. Usually bad pelvic floor patients are TMCC, temporal mandibular problems. So I end up going upstairs to take a quick look-see. And they're like, what are you doing out here? I was like, just hang on. <laughs> so then I have to kind of un have them unlearn what it was that they spent their life learning, doing, and preaching. And you just tiptoe and tread carefully and say, look, we're on the same team. I love you and I want you to do well. And I think one of the things that can help you do well is if you just kind of trust the process, go with me here and understand that those hamstrings need a little bit of life right now. They're just back there and they're dead. Yeah. That was a long winded answer. No. Do most people sign up and be like, yeah. Most those people sign up. Yeah. You know, I, I can just, Emily, let me just tell you, it's about how certain you are. Mm. You know, I might, I might tell the doc, doc, my blood pressure is high. And the doc's going to look at you. He'll take your blood pressure, maybe take it for several weeks. And then he, he looks at you and he says, you know what? Your blood pressure is 200 over 150. You thought your blood pressure was high. You're right. And then at that point, he's going to say, you must start some sort of medication to lower your blood pressure. How sure are you, doc? I'm damn sure. And then at that point, I'm going to go, okay, all right, well, whatever you say. If I'm kicking the bucket, let's get some drugs in me now. The same thing holds true for us. Our degree of certainty, our level of confidence in what we understand about human asymmetry, or in this case, hyperflexible hamstrings. I want to look at that patient. I want to tell them, I am certain that this is leading you down a path that, that I certainly cannot follow. And we got to pull you back. And I'm very confident. And the more confident you are, obviously, this is sort of a practice philosophy. It has nothing to do with PRI. The more confident you are about the science behind what you're saying, then um, the, more, the more reliant that patient will be upon your instruction. And then the better off you are at prescribing whatever it is you want to do. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great message for any practitioner, Cairo PT. Any. Any. Yeah, any. Yeah. Can you talk about hypermobility and also ligament laxity? Because I think sure. PRI has a very unique perspective on this. I have a, uh, a young man I'm treating right now, and he's, he's on the EDS scale. So he, he's probably midway up the scale. His mom said, do you, do you think he has EDS? And I said, well, is a frog's ass watertight? Oh, hell yes, he has EDS. And so, you know, Mrs. Mom, your son is so loosey-goosey that we need to get this under control. And lo and behold, he's got tight hamstrings. And almost to the point that he's outside the range on the too tight end. I know that young man is using those hamstrings as a form of stability. So how much true tightness there is remains to be seen because we can do a little bit of work and he gains 15 to 20 degrees of hamstring mobility that he didn't have a moment before. So that tells us a lot of it is neurologically induced. Who the hell can blame him? He's using those hamstrings for the stability that he must have. But, but it's, it's like me breathing more with my neck because I need air. It's not helpful. It's paradoxical. So if we take that away from him, we then have to replace that with some other form of stability. Because who are we to rob someone of the only thing they have? Like someone's firing up TFLs too much. Well, if we take that away, you know, oh, TFL is just a dude saying, I'm a tensor fasciolata and I'm here to help. And then we're saying, well, get the hell off the field, pal. 
well, where are the rest of the players? We're about to lose the game if we don't get somebody off the bench. So I need to tell this guy what he can do. So back to our ligamentous laxity young man. He's 15 years old. He's got a distorted bite. He's got teeth that won't erupt. He's got all kinds of problems upstairs that are stemming from his EDS. Because what he's doing upstairs is increasing stability. I just put air quotes around the word stability. He's increasing stability with his head and neck. And that's keeping teeth from erupting. So now we're saying, all right, your teeth are erupting late indirectly because of your Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, your EDS. So your ligamentous laxity is indirectly causing that because you're increasing your bite force. You're stabilizing with your mouth, which is keeping your teeth from erupting. Mm. So you're, you're intruding teeth because you have ligamentous laxity. But what would prevent us from creating more mobility is your two tight hamstrings. But wait, he's got laxity. You don't want more mobility. I want mobility on my terms. Right now, this kid can't alternate or reciprocate or do anything one side to the other. No pendular movement, physically visible or neurologically perceivable in his own mind. He doesn't have that. So I need to then facilitate that and teach him how. Well, he's got a juvenile kyphosis. So, wait a minute. I thought that PRI says that you should be able to round your back. Well, this kid's the black belt of back rounding. He lives with a rounded back. Yeah, and thankfully, no skeletal deformation yet, but coming soon to a theater near you, young man, will be skeletal deformation as your thoracic vertebrae begin to, begin to wedge when you're in your 50s. So, we don't want that. So I'm having a talk with mom and, um, and I said to mom, so let's, let's discuss anxiety, which this young man has a great deal of. And I said, okay, mom, here's what I'd like for you to do. And every podcast listener can do this right now. What I'd like for you to do, podcast listeners and mom, Ooh, is know. let's evaluate your level of stress. And folks who are listening, I'm putting air quotes around the word stress. Let's evaluate your level of stress. So here's what I'd like for you to do. Assign yourself a number, zero to 10, right now of whatever your stress is, and don't tell me. Okay, everybody got it? Got it. Now what I want you to do is take a giant breath in. Go ahead and do that. And hold that breath and evaluate your level of stress. And you might notice that the number went up a dot. Oh, I was a two. Now I'm a three. I'm still fine. Okay, great. You can breathe out, chill out. Now what I'd like for you to do is we're going to do that drill again. So let's all take a giant breath in. And now I want you to hold your breath and I want you to crunch down and round your back. Round your back. And evaluate your level of stress with this big giant beach ball of air in your chest. And obviously your stress number went up a few points. I don't care what those points were. But now let's imagine you're doing that for a day or a week or how about a month? How about 15 years? How about 33 years? Whatever. If you're doing that, you're chronically hyperinflated on a rounded upper back. Life sucks. And so now Joe Schmo, Mike Cantrell walks up and says, I need you to learn to flex. But wait a minute, I've got kyphosis and you want me to flex? Are you out of your rock picking mind? <laughs> well, maybe, but let's bear with me here. If we had you fully exhale, and if we had you, Mr. I use the hell out of my hip flexors with an anteriorly rotated pelvis 
and those hip flexors are on. But if you asked me to posteriorly rotate my pelvis to neutral and then fully exhaled and then asked me to extend like everybody else on the planet, my life gets better. Huh. So really, you created thoracic lumbar flexion with posterior rotation of a pelvis to neutral through activation of hamstrings while I exhale. So there's activation of IOs and TAs to internally rotate my ribs to establish a diaphragm that's now domed. I'm ready to inhale for real. Yes. And you'll notice that your abdominals are active and your stress number went down. Huh? Well, that's kind of crazy. So you asked me to flex first before I earned the right to extend. Yes. But you had to flex correctly. So you'll see people in PRI treating a kyphotic T-spine with flexion. And everybody on the planet goes, they're crazy. And I'm going, no, it's called exhale. Please exhale first. Then you can extend if you like, because I'd be all about that. Count me in for that. If there was one word to sum that up, it's, it's integration, maybe? Hey, there's a concept. <laughs> you know, and I talk about this all the, time, all the time in class. I say, you know, if I jumped on an alligator's back, we've got a lot of those in Georgia. So if I jump on a gator's back and I grab him by the snout, he could wiggle in the frontal plane. He still has mobility and he could transverse plane rotate. He might get me because he can transverse plane rotate. So the first thing I'll do with that gator is holding his snout closed. I'll sit on his back and pull him up into extension. Now this extended alligator is immobilized. So are humans. They are immobilized. And that young man with the kyphotic T-spine is still in a state of extension. Well, how do you know? Because he's got a great big ball of air in his ribcage. He just happens to be flexed around it and his hip flexors are on. That is dyssynchrony at its height. You can't have an anteriorly rotated pelvis and a thoracic spine that's rounded. That dog won't hunt. You'll compensate. You got to compensate somewhere. It's a sagittal scoliosis, if you will. So we got to descoliify. Hey, there's research on it. Obiashi said back in God, it was like mid 2000, like 2005, six, something like that. I'm pulling that out of thin air. It could have been a different year, but it's still Obiashi in Japan. And he said, Hey, you can alter spinal curvatures with respiration. Well, duh. Well, he was probably saying, well, duh, too, before he did the study. And he just wanted to validate or invalidate his well, duh. And sure enough, his well, duh was, well, duh, it works. You can alter curves out the wazoo with air. I should think so, because ribs are the best way to move a spine. So for the, for the athletes that yes. push their capacity, I was actually just having a discussion the other day with a trainer, and he was saying that, He's like, well, sprinters go into extension. They lock down their facets to help with their speed. And I was like, well, okay, uh, let's talk about that. <laughs> what would you say is really important for just the high-level athletes that do push their airway management capacity? Let me give you two anecdotes of a couple of patients. One was a sprinter. This is a really, really high-level sprinter, a big shot. And this guy's like a Bahamian gold medalist, and, you know, so somehow or another he ended up getting wind that I might be able to help him. So he, he comes and we start working, but he had, he was fraught with injuries. And he says, yeah, man, all my friends, you know, they're the same way, you know, they're hurt all the time. I was like, yeah, I'm, I got you. 
And maybe it's because when they're sprinting, they are locking those facets down and trying to explode. Who the hell knows? Who cares? What I do know is that if he only has to run for about 10 seconds, which I guess a 100-meter dasher would run for about 10 seconds, they prefer 9.98. But, you know, anyway, maybe they can get away with it. But it's going to catch up with you after a while. It always does. Always. It's not, I don't think it. Hell, I know it. Every, every runner on earth, sprinter or long distance, gets injured eventually. So anyway, back to the point. Every ballet dancer does too. Yeah. Back to the point. So, so I said, all right, so the first thing we have to do is get your injuries down. So we made him a balanced, non-gator, mobile, flexible spaghetti noodle. And he's like, man, this feels so good. I'm so ready to run. And I was like, well, let's run. <laughs> so that, that getting his symptoms out, he had multiple issues. I can't remember them all. Some were in his shins. They were everywhere. Anyway, so he runs. He was running and sort of bookending his workouts with some assignments that I'd given him. After a few weeks of getting back in condition, he said, you know, something's wrong, man. It's like I can't run. I don't have any speed. So we successfully Congratulations, Mike Cantrell. You've slowed down a gold medalist. So you're really a good clinician. And so then I said, all right, look, speed is the least of our worries. What I did was made him unstable. No different than the juvenile thoracic kyphosis kid or no different than the yoga dancer or yoga dancer, the yoga or the ballet dancer. No different than any of them. The minute you take away that which they use to stabilize themselves, you have an obligation to then replace that with something new. Well, our first mission with this gold medal sprinter was to get him out of pain. So if we take away how he locks himself up, then he is going to see reduction of pain. Now, an injured runner has a runtime of five years in a 100-yard dash, right? He runs 100 meters. It'll clock him at about five years because he's not running. So a non-injured runner at least has an 11-second sprint. He's irritated and pissed because that sucks. So now all we have to do is replace him with the new person that he will be through now some fundamentals of sprinting. But this guy is now a different person. He's a different sprinter who's now able to use a right leg. Oh, and here's a concept, and a left leg, <laughs> a right rib cage, and a left rib cage, and the lungs that go with it and a right neck, and a left neck, and a right face, and a left face, and a right arm, and a left arm, and a right foot, and a left foot, instead of one, 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 all the way up. So then we got his times down to 9.98. And he's like, man, this is so cool. He sends me this little card when he went to the London Olympics. And he was like, oh, stoked, because he ran this 9.98. And I got this little shadow box he sends me. It's like, hey, this is really neat. Thanks a lot, blah, blah, blah. I still talk to him all the time. Anyway, so the other guy is a Georgia Tech runner. And this has been about three years ago now, I guess. Anyway, he runs 800 meters, which is a dash. And he would do a lot of long distance running. He said, but Mike, when I start trying to do speed work, my back kills me. Well, huh, you and I are already suspicious of why his back kills him. We smell a rat. We know that as he increases his need for air, he's going to increase his paraspinal activity to raise his rib cage, which makes him more of a gator while he's sprinting. That dog won't hunt. You can't do that and not expect to have trouble. 
He's either going to get Achilles tendonitis, plantar fasciitis, or low back pain. Pick it. Strong chance that he could get some jaw pain, but we'll leave it there. So, because to me, that Achilles tendonitis, plantar fasciitis, or low back pain are one and the same thing. He's extended, extended, extended. Now, I would love for this guy to be able to rotate and breathe into one lung when he's standing on his left leg. I'd love for him to be able to breathe into his right lung. And then when he's standing on his right leg, he should have the option, if he needs air at that moment, to breathe into his left lung without having to use his stinking back and extending further and further and further and further to get more and more air. So if I hear someone telling me they've got low back pain as they're doing sprint work, I'm like, okay, good. This won't be hard because you can give them the dumbest sagittal degatorifying activities to get them in touch with rotation again. And usually that does it. And he was fairly simple. It's like, okay, we'll just get you to quiet your back. Let's find your hamstrings. You know, that's like PRI 101. So we can hand anybody that kind of person. So when somebody says to you or to me, well, a sprinter needs extension and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, fine. Well, if you're going to allow him to extend, shouldn't he be able to tolerate it? Because it's irresponsible to say, well, you need extension, so go extend. But I'm getting hurt. Well, whatever. You need extension, so go extend. So maybe you should consider quitting running. That's stupid. That doesn't make any sense to me. How about we teach you how to not need to extend? Maybe you'll end up faster. Just a thought. Or normalize your extension. So when you talk about the simple degatorfy move, if -hmm. there was one thing that you could leave our listeners with, if there was like one thing they wanted to try, and obviously everyone should get assessed first and see a PRI practitioner before just like, you know, playing. But let's say someone listening to the podcast just wanted to be like, you know, I'd love to like try something to just get more integrated, not feel like I'm, I'm stuck in that rib flare. What can you kind of like talk us through what that move would look like? There are benign activities that are really, really safe. It's kind of like um, dental appliances. The easiest, safest dental appliance is a flat plane splint. You could stick one in, they could move to Namibia and never see them again. And that thing's never going to hurt them. So I can feel very comfortable with certain PRI activities that they could do. And they'll probably never have any trouble. One of them is that simple, good old fashioned desagittalizing, degatorifying 90-90 hip lift. I love the 90-90. Feet against the wall, a little posterior pelvic rotation. But, you know, some people will even screw that up. And they'll turn that activity into a leg press in a New York minute. Mm, And, you know, the ballet dancer or uh, the yogi, they're hamstringless. And they can palm the floor. So I might, rather than having them put their feet on the wall to begin with, I might have them hook just their heels on the edge of a chair in that same 90-90 position and then posteriorly rotate their pelvis so that they can actually feel what hamstrings feel like because that's a pure hamstring activity. So then they could do that until they feel like they're able to execute a posterior pelvic rotation. They'll all insist they can, but they usually screw it up. And then maybe put their feet on a wall because the quicker we can get their feet on a wall, the better because it actually gives them some grounding and most of them are forward on the balls of their feet and they've never felt their heels hit the ground in their life. So you can get them on a wall and then teach them again how to posteriorly rotate that pelvis and let them experience what that's like. The ones that turn it into a leg press are doing a big giant bridge. They're lifting their whole body off, off the floor or bed or table or whatever they're laying on. And then they'll, they're the ones that if you saw them again, they'd come back in and they'd say, you know, I, I tried that, that 90 thing you told me about. <laughs> and Mike, I'll tell you, it just hurts my upper back. I'm like, really? Show me what you're doing. 
And sure enough, the only thing touching the table is their upper back. Ah. I said, well, yeah, I guess if somebody drove me into the floor with my back, I'd probably complain too. So yeah, you're not doing what I asked you to do. What I'd like for you to do is just a very gentle posterior pelvic rotation. Your belt line, your upper waist should still be in contact with the floor. But I don't feel like I'm doing anything. Good. That's what I want. I want you to feel like you're not doing it. I want you to feel like you're wasting your time. Flip on Gilligan's Island and watch that while you're doing it. I mean, <laughs> just be benign with this thing to start with. We can get fancy later, but that's a good, solid state rocking activity to do. I love it. I feel like we've literally, if there was an ice, you know, you see those iceberg photos and there, you see the little oh, yeah. tip and then there's a big iceberg under the water. I feel like we've just seen the little tip. We'll have to do like part two. Podcast two, two, yeah. two. Uh, <laughs> So where can people find you and where can people find PRI? They can, they can, well, if they just go to posturerestoration.com, they'll find PRI. I'm findable through that. They can, you can, I've got an email address. If they went like to, you go to the PRI website and then there's like programs and courses. And if you were to click on programs and courses, you'd scroll down and you'd see faculty. You could click there and then you'd see all the PRI faculty. And there's my grinning face there too. God help you. Anyway, so you could click there and click on me and then there's an email for me and all that jazz contact info. You could also go and find a provider and I'm hanging around down there too. Cool. So there's phone numbers and emails. Just go to the PRI website. Are you on social media? Yeah, I'm on Instagram. I'm at Mike Cantrell PRC. And that's, uh, I, spend, I spend a fair amount of time on Instagram. I, you know, I quit Facebook a long time ago. Just lame. So anyway, so I dumped <laughs> Facebook and, and um, I just do Instagram now. Great. So that's, that's, oh, I've got Twitter too, at Mike Cantrell PRC. Same thing. People, people can find some fun stuff on Instagram. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it, cool. it's fun. I like to, you know, when I travel, I like post travel pictures and stuff like that. And then every now and then I'll stick something uh, associated with the travel, some PRI thing. You know, it, it, you know, I think sometimes people post every other minute on Instagram <laughs> and, you know, there, there's a, there's some folks that follow me that, you know, I mean, they're extremely popular and I'm like, well, you know, they're, putting a lot of stuff out. And I guess that makes you popular. I don't know that I'm that interested in being popular. It's like, you guys need to chill on all these posts. <laughs> you know, we love you, but after a while we can't, we don't, I don't know. It's just my opinion. It's like, yeah. I don't take it too seriously. So we'll have to put on the scuba gear and go dive deeper next time. Oh, I'd love Part to. Two. But thank you so much. I feel like we have an actionable tip and even just introduction of hey, we're asymmetrical is like a huge perspective and mind shift for a lot of people. So thank you so much for being on Muscle Medicine Podcast. It's been a Crooked blast. people unite, yeah. Yeah, crooked people time. unite. <laughs> That's a wrap. I have two truths that I fully believe in. First, to be 1% better every single day. And second, all feedback is good feedback because it helps us grow. Why do I say this? If you're enjoying these conversations and you find this is adding value, send us some love by subscribing to Muscle Medicine Podcast on iTunes. And if you want to share your voice with the world and scream it from the rooftops and tell your friends, or you can just give us a little feedback so we can grow by rating and reviewing Muscle Medicine on iTunes. Thank you guys. So much gratitude. Dr. Emily Kybert here.